Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage for today comes from Luke 3, 7, 18. Listen for what God is saying to you. Then John, John said to the crowds who came to be baptized by him, You children of snakes, who warned you to escape from the angry judgment that is coming soon? Produce fruit that shows you have changed your hearts and lives. And don't even think about saying to yourselves, Abraham is our father. I tell you that God is able to raise up Abraham's children from these stones. The ax is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and tossed into the fire. The crowds asked him, what then should we do? He answered, whoever has two shirts, two shirts must share with the one who has none. And whoever has food must do the same. Even tax, tax collectors came to be baptized. They said to him, teacher, what should we do? He replied, collect no more than you are authorized to collect. Soldiers asked, what about us? What should we do? He answered, don't cheat or harass anyone. Be satisfied with your pay. The people were filled with expectation, and everyone wondered whether John might be the Christ. John replied to them all, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than me is coming. I'm not worthy to loosen the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The shovel he uses to sift the wheat from the husks is in his hands. He will clean out this threshing area and bring the wheat into his barn, but he will burn the husks with fire that can't be put out. With many other words, John appealed to them, proclaiming God good news to the people. May God add a blessing to the hearing, the hearing and living out of his scripture. Good morning, everyone. My name is Emily McKinley, and I have the great joy of serving as the pastor here at Urban Village um, with many of the people that you've seen up front, but many you don't often see up front, but help us be who we are and do what we do, who practice courage in, in common ways and in extraordinary ways. Um, it is a privilege. Please join me in a word of prayer. God, we are grateful for the gift that it is to come together on days like these to hear a little bit more about who you are and who you've been in our own lives, and also in what is shared throughout scripture. And so as we lean into this passage today, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, help us to be people of, of both discernment and obedience as we listen for what it is that your spirit is calling us to do, who you are calling us to be. Clear away the things that crowd into our minds, those to-do lists and those projects that have yet to be done, that we might be present here and touch your vision just a little bit more than we could have if we had not been here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was a kid, 
I would sometimes see this bumper sticker um, every once in a while on the back of a car that said, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And I would feel very confused, like what am I supposed to be paying attention to? The bumper sticker didn't offer any suggestions, and Google at that time did not exist, right? So I couldn't even do a search, like why should I be outraged or something? So I was always kind of left with this feeling, this sense of being accused of a crime that I didn't know was a crime without really knowing why. Why should I be outraged? And why don't I know why I should be outraged? What did I do wrong or what did I not do that I was supposed to do? A giant spotlight on my lack of outrage and how wrong I was for not having it. And in a way, I wonder if this was what maybe those folks were feeling as they listened to John calling them children of snakes. Here they are, somehow knowing that they've made a wrong turn somewhere along the line, but not quite sure why or where or how, following their instincts to the back of a line of a people in a desert to do a thing that was completely absurd for them. Baptism was for Gentiles who converted to Judaism, not for the ones who had been born into the tradition. Part of the deal of being Jewish is that God made a promise, a covenant, to never leave you, and the covenant is your birthright. It's a given. So if it doesn't make so it doesn't kind of make sense to convert to something that you've had your entire life. But something was wrong. They could feel it. And for all of the weird things about John, the camel hair clothes and the paleo diet, the brash declarations and insults, there was something he was saying that spoke a truth, even if they didn't get it up here, they got it in here. John was scratching this itch that they all had but couldn't quite put their finger on. And that thing, that thing that they knew was somehow off that wasn't working was this. They were frauds. Somewhere along the way, they had been taught that it was enough to be born into the right faith, that it was enough to do, it was enough to just keep observing the Sabbath, enough to just drop their coins in the bucket, showing up for holy, high holy days, wash, rinse, repeat. But what John's saying is, well, that is a fraudulent faith. It's not enough. It's not enough to be a, a card-carrying member and call it good, because what's the point of membership if the principles that shape the membership have been reduced to checking a few boxes and then getting on with your life? John is trying to shake his people awake, not only because he's an activist, but also because of the incredibly malnourished vision of the world that they've been given. For too long, they've been told that if they just kept their heads down and hustled hard for them and theirs, they'd be good to go. And in order to understand this better, though, you have to understand the container in which all of this is happening. So the Roman Empire, in which all of this is happening, was pretty much at the peak of its power at the point of history in which Jesus was born. And there were two ways in particular that Rome kept things on lockdown. The first was by infusing society with a constant and underlying sense of fear and anxiety. And they did this by talking a lot about peace. And this peace, they said, was only made possible by a large and ever-present military. And so peace was really ongoing, low-key war. Government, military, police was everywhere, and they were supplemented by a kind of private police force that worked for the local governor, Herod. We wouldn't know anything about that in Hyde Park. And this brings me to the second way that Rome maintained power. Today, we would call it colonization. 
Basically, Rome realized that they could be much more effective in keeping power if it invited a few locals to enjoy a spoonful of it themselves. And so here you have Herod, the point person to keep the Jewish population in check. You pair Herod with a religious leadership that is much more interested in the finer details of the faith um, than the lived realities of their parishioners, and what you get are a people drowning. Drowning in fear and anxiety, drowning in oppression and depression, drowning with no one telling them which way is up. So they go with what they know and they go with the flow, fighting for scraps and trying to stay on top of the pile or at least not end up at the bottom, right? They are soul sick and they know it, but they don't know how or what it is or how to get out all of it, get out all of it. And, but then they hear this voice in the wilderness crying out, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. John is calling them out. You children of snakes, produce fruit that shows you have changed your hearts and lives. And don't even think about saying to yourselves, I'm a legacy child. I've got a spiritual trust fund that goes all the way back to Abraham, right? I tell you, God is able to raise up Abraham's children from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and tossed into the fire. They know it. Everything he's saying. They're not even fighting him, right? But they're at a loss as to what to do. And so you hear them three times ask, what should we do? What should we do, the crowds ask. Share what you have, John says. There's more than enough for everyone to have enough. What should we do, the tax collectors ask. Don't work the system in your favor at the expense of others. There is more than enough for everyone to have enough. What should we do, the soldiers ask. Don't exploit and abuse the people that you have been charged to protect and serve, John says. There's more than enough for everyone to have enough. What should we do? What should we do? What should we do? The hand-wringing, the worry, the anxiety, it goes deep. They're in a kind of sunken place, and they don't know what it is or how they got there, but they're not so far down that they can't tell that something is wrong, that this feeling that they don't have enough, that there isn't enough, that they aren't enough, is off. But they're so distracted in their daily lives, so consumed by the fear and anxiety that they might be the ones left holding the bag while everyone got theirs, that they can't see beyond me and mine for today and tomorrow. And John, perhaps the only reason why he can see all of this so clearly, perhaps the reason why he's so angry is that he has completely extracted himself from all the things that would try and drag him into that headspace, that spiritual space. John lives in a very, the very place where everyone works so hard to avoid. He lives in the desert, a symbol of scarcity, a symbol of dryness and not enoughness, and yet it's everyone else telling him that they don't have enough, not the other way around. Choosing to live in the desert gives you a different perspective and a different outlook. You discover how to live life in radically new ways. If you've ever been strapped for cash, you know what it means to get creative. If you've ever been rejected by your family, you know what it's like to stitch together a chosen family. In the desert, you find that while life can be challenging, there are creative opportunities. The old understanding of the desert as a place to avoid, a place to be feared, is stripped away and replaced with a new worldview, 
abundance. The desert becomes a place for abundant inspiration and alternative ecosystems of surprising beauty and interdependence. And this abundant worldview, this is the second transforming value that we are focusing on. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll know that we're talking about our commitment at UBC to shift from allowing white institutional values to drive our decision-making to operating from a different set of values, what our partners at Crossroads Anti-Racism call transforming values. And I unpacked this last week, which you can hear about in our podcast, so I'm not going to go into it too deeply, but just a reminder that white institutions are not the same as white people. We are all saturated in white institutional values, whether we want to be or not. Now, the first set of values we talked about was shifting from either or to both and thinking. And the value that we're focusing on today is shifting from scarcity, from a scarcity mindset to an abundant worldview. Scarcity tells us that there isn't enough, that there couldn't possibly be enough for me and for you and for all of us. And so we build walls, we get greedy, we become mean. And we are never, never satisfied. Because it's not really about having enough. It's about having more. And John is here to call that stuff out. <laughs> the good news of the gospel is that there's more than enough for all. But the bad news is that we have to live like it. We have to live like we have enough. And we have to live like we are enough. One way that this kind of scarcity mindset can show up is in how we view ourselves and each other. About a year and a half ago, during Pride Month, we had a video campaign on Facebook that was called God is Proud of You. Some of you might remember it. And it was a campaign featuring a few UVCers who were willing to put themselves out there as LGBTQ children of God. And one of those people featured was our own LV. It's a great video, a beautiful video. But it wasn't long before we started to get a few trolls in the comments, right? And, as I, and, and for whatever reason, it was LV's video in particular that got the pile on. And I have some my thoughts about that, but I'll leave that to the side. As I read the comments, I became angry. Not so much because of the hateful theology that people were spouting, even though that was a thing. No, I was angry because these people didn't know LV. It would have been easy, I think, a gut reaction, really, to try to go on the defense, to try and justify queer people in church, to try and make a case for their welcome. But all of this, this assumes that queer people are a deficit, a liability for our community. And that is starting from a place of scarcity. Because what we know about LV and every queer person at UVC, just like every person at UVC, is that she brings gifts to our community that are unique to who she is all of who she is. And so I sent a message out to some um, HP Dubbers. Some of you um, were among that. And I asked them to share about what they love about LV at UVC. I said, don't respond to the trolls, which most of you uh, obeyed. I said, just post the gifts that LV brings to our community. And what came next was an overwhelming roll call of all the ways that LV has been a gift to our community, from playing with our kids to the voice she adds on our praise team. People shared about the joy and the light that she is with an encouraging spirit, even the ways that she inspires folks to greater fitness. There were 50 comments, and 41 of them were giving thanks to God for LV, for the fullness of who she is and what she brings to our community. This is what an abundant worldview brings. Shifting from defensiveness and anxiety of a scarcity mindset to courage and confidence 
to share generously and even celebrate God's good gifts among us. There's another way that scarcity shows up in our lives often, money. Over the past month, we've been asking you to make a financial pledge, which if you haven't done it yet, <clears throat> this, is all, this all helps us know how to plan out our next year, right? And budgets are important. People need to be paid. Rent needs to be covered. Ministries need to be supported. But if we aren't careful, we can easily find ourselves getting something vital mixed up in our minds, that how much money we have is how much we are capable of. I'll say it again in a different way. It's too easy to let our finances dictate our sense of what's possible. When we operate out of a scarcity mindset, we begin to believe that our limits are defined by dollars and cents. And because money is often limited, so then becomes our imaginations. Our jerk reaction as a community, as a church, as an institution becomes no. No, we don't have enough money to do this. No, we don't have enough money to do that. I'm sure no, none of you have ever encountered that in your lives. No, then, becomes the default, right? The default institutional response to, inno uh, to innovation, to anti-oppression, and to liberation, because those things take time and they take effort. And this kind of scarcity mindset means that we try to move as quickly and efficiently as possible, which wouldn't be bad, except when you move too fast, you end up running people over or pushing people to the side. When you move too fast, you can't take the time that's needed to consider diverse needs. So then the majority wins, right? Whether that's whiteness, straightness, able-bodiedness, English speaking, financially stable, citizenship, educated, you fill in the blank, right? Taking time takes resources, and if the only way we measure our resources is through money, there will never be enough. What should we do? Now you're feeling the people, right? What we do is we join John in the wilderness. We see beyond what we've been taught to see, right? Finances are one way of measuring things, but that's not the only way. And finances are limited. So then what isn't limited? What do we have that cannot be taken away? Power. Have you ever made a power budget? How much power do you have? Instead of starting with the question, how do I want to spend my money? What if you started with the question, how do I want to use my power? This is where things can get really interesting. And this is where John is asking his followers to go. Radically reorient yourself to the faith you have known, the faith that you were taught, he's telling his people. Start with the power you have, the power that comes from a God who drew you out from oppression, who brought you through the desert, who has supplied your needs time and time and generation after generation. Start with where you are and who you are, not with who you aren't. Start with what you have, not with what you don't have. Begin right where you are, as you are, and see what God will do. We work from a power budget that will never run out because our God will never stop supplying us. We stop focusing on what we don't have and start working from what we do have. We stop thinking about how we're not enough because God has given us all that we need, especially when we move together. This is how God makes a way where there seems to be no way. And this is how we begin to walk in the way, the way that John came to prepare, the way that God is ready, excited, eager to show us through Jesus. Let's pray.
God, we are grateful for the abundance that you gift us with. The abundance of this community. The abundance of your imagination that enables us to pray for those things that we can't even imagine to pray for. When we say, not my will, but your will, God, it opens up a whole new set of possibilities that we couldn't even begin to imagine. We thank you that you give us access to an unending supply of power. Help us to see it. Help us to have eyes that are shaped by the wilderness and not by the world that we live in. Help us to be people who are not afraid to get creative, who are not afraid to step out in faith, to trust you, to lead you, to be led by you, and to produce the fruit that you are so eager to produce in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.